we should be able to deliver new sources of income. The Aboriginals in, in Australia have been badly treated since, you know, for 200 years, but even in the 60s and 70s, I think, when the mining companies put them in reservations, the kids were taken away, they lost sources of income. So now, Australia, many people are looking for new sources of income and purpose. And I think we can offer this with sorghum approach to create energy and food in a better way than using solar and wind or some of the other technologies. Welcome to the Brave Bold Brilliant Podcast. I'm here today with Klaus Nemzo, who is a CEO of Binex Singapore. That's right. Welcome, nice. Klaus. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's fantastic. And we're, we're here in your wonderful offices, right in the centre of Singapore. So Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really centrally located, yeah. But Singapore is small anyway, so it's... It's a small place. It is, it is, but what a brilliant place to be. Huh? True, yeah. Fantastic. So, I've got a very important question to ask you, Klaus, to kick us mm. off. How do we save the planet? <laughs> right, and here are all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you could fix that for us, that would be It's probably amazing. a com combination of things, but I think, uh, you know, clean energy would be one, uh, one, one component. I think just behavioral changes, that people are more aware of, you know, what they're doing, uh, and safe energy in sort of daily life. Uh, on the clean energy side, I think if people would adopt nuclear, particularly the new type of, uh, of molten salt nuclear reactors, I think that would go a long way. But, you know, I'm not quite sure that will happen anytime mm. soon. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, this is the space that you're, you're operating in now, really, in terms of sustainability, yes, um, yep. biodiversity, bioenergy, etc. But your background is, mm -hmm. um, well, very, very diverse, digital, innovation startups startups bp so corporate. big corporates you've kind of covered such a such a wide mm. range so do you want to just tell us a little bit around kind of how you've ended up in binex <laughs> with this fabulous career that you've had yes so uh, before binex i was chief innovation officer at eastern pacific shipping um, and that we, we ran a three-year program for startups to uh, so go through you know the accelerator as we called it a lot of mentoring happening and investment and so forth and one thing that became clear is that the shipping industry just recently started to look into replacing the entire fuel supply with green fuel. And that sort of led me to, to Binex, because Binex is all about green fuels. But it's kind of a recent phenomenon that people are thinking in those industries, coal industry is another one, to just replace the entire fuel. Before that, it was always about marginal savings. Can we save 5% through a particular technology? Can we use, in shipping, can we use LNG, liquefied natural mm -hmm. gas, to maybe reduce emissions by 30% or so? But nobody was really, at the time, talking about, let's try to replace 100%. Mm. So that sort of led me to, to, to Binex and before, as you mentioned, I worked at BP in digital innovation that looked a lot of, at a lot of technology from drones to AI to quantum computing, quantum sensing and you know, everything in between, chatbots actually as well. And so now at Binex, I think we have the opportunity to, to produce green energy, but using the, the latest high tech uh, that is available to do that in, in itself in an efficient way. Mm. So talk, talk through that a little bit, because it's quite fascinating when we caught up, well, it was probably a few, about a month ago, wasn't it now, we yeah. first met, yeah. and mm. you were telling me, and I was like, wow, this is super, super smart. What a great way of approaching, you know, just the whole mm. challenge that we've got globally. So just talk a little bit about the process and how it works at Binex. Yeah, so where we fit in, I mean, if you look at, um, in shipping, for example, if you look at green uh, fuel generation, mm. people would use, if they don't use nuclear, uh, they would use solar and wind 
to produce green hydrogen, ammonia and so forth. So solar and wind are the major sources of, of renewable energy that then you can use to produce green fuel. We are not in that space, obviously, we're on the side of organic uh, biomass. Mm. And in the biomass space, until recently, you find most people trying to look at waste. And with waste, I mean used cooking oil, for example. So mm. here in Singapore, there's Nestle, the, the Finnish oil and gas company. They're using used cooking oil and other sort of fat things to produce sustainable aviation fuel. So green fuel for, for the airline industry. And I'm thinking, can you really, how much used cooking oil can you get your hands on? This yeah. is not sort of, you know, waste by, by definition. You want to actually reduce waste and not sort of increase. Mm -hmm. While on the other side, the, the industry is looking for, as they want to replace the entire fuel supply, they're looking to increasing and reliable supply of these green fuels. So that's why we're thinking that waste, entirely relying on waste for, for that purpose is, is tricky. So what we're doing is we have... In Japan, we developed a seed of a plant called sorghum, which some people know in Africa, India, and Australia actually, but I didn't even know much about sorghum before mm. I joined. And typically, grain sorghum grows kind of a meter and a half uh, high. The sorghum seed that we have created in Japan over many years and tested in many countries goes up to five, six, seven meters high. So it creates a huge amount of what's called biomass. It mm. creates grain uh, for the food, which is important. It creates the stems and the leaves, all the, the green mushy stuff mm. uh, to produce fuel. And it leaves the roots in the ground to create carbon credits. Mm. So that's kind of a relatively small and growing approach to create green energy using just plants, basically. Wow. And so, so when the, the plant's grown, mm. it's harvested in yeah. some, some sense, some shape or form. Yes, yes. exactly. The, the, the plant element that is for food, is that for animal feed or is that for human it's consumption? both. So when we're harvesting, we have these big machines that cut off in one go, cut off the, uh, the grain first. Mm -hmm. And that's is, is used for cattle feed right now, but increasingly also for human feed because it's gluten-free and actually has interesting nutritional value. Uh, and some countries like Indonesia, for example, uh, declared that they will use sorghum as a source of, of food independence. Mm -hmm. So the food goes, the, the grain goes off, and then the harvesting machine takes all the green stuff yep. and puts that into you know, various machinery, and the, the roots will leave in the ground. Mm. Uh, so that's basically how the, how the harvesting works. And it happens every four months or so. Right, right. So, and, and, oh gosh, so you get, you're getting sort of, you know, three yields a year then. Exactly, yeah, up so, to three yields, yeah. Right, okay. So that, that, that's interesting in itself as yes. well, isn't it? In terms yeah. of, um, I suppose, just how much the volume you can produce. Yeah, producing per hectare, you know, we're expecting two to three hundred tons of biomass per hectare, which is, you know, a huge amount more than you would normally uh, mm. expect. So you get the green mushy stuff. Mm technical me green mushy <laughs> stuff <laughs> I, I couldn't say it better than that. <laughs> with my best mancunian accent you get mm. the green mushy stuff and mm. then you create the the fuel well we do sort of the first step that we do is we create um little energy pellets energy pellets. so the first right. step is not liquid fuel but it's little energy pellets they're okay. so-called white pellets they have lower energy density but they can be used as energy supply uh, you burn them and create energy from that. Similar to, I think, some of the wood pellets that you use in, in the UK. Okay. Uh, but these things are clearly green. Um, and then through further processing, we produce what we call black pellets. Uh, black pellets, their uh, energy density is exactly the same as coal. Mm. And that allows us to replace coal in coal power plants. Okay. 
And that's obviously in many countries like Australia, where the government and industry has declared that they will shut down the coal power plants in just a few years uh, if they continue to use coal, of course, is, is the implicit assumption. If we can replace the coal with something that is green, then they could extend the life, which you know, often these plants have an expected life cycle, life expectancy until you know, 19, 2040s or so. So if we can replace the coal, then we give them a new sort of lease to life. That's the first step. Mm. And then the next step would be to create uh, something like biomethanol. Uh, that is, is in a, fuel, a liquid fuel that the shipping industry, but also other industries are industry, mm. interested in. So that's how it works. Okay, so, so the, the black pellet fuel creation mm. um, part, that's happening now, is it then, Klaus? Um, well, right now we're just starting the first trials. Right. But that okay. will happen as the first step, we will produce black pellets for okay. the coal industry. Okay, fantastic. So, so actually, you're an interesting part of the journey, really, because you mm. know the scientists, nearly these clever people, have have kind of come up with with these seeds that seeds. are capable of producing that much. And not only that, they're also uh, bred in a way. By the way, we don't use genetically modi genetic modified things because I realize that in Europe, in particular, that's kind of a taboo thing, particularly mm. if we want to sell the food. So mm. we don't use uh, genetic modification. It's just sort of traditional crossbreeding as you would always have done. Um, but it's not only optimized for as much as possible of this green biomass, but also to uh, grow on marginal land. So sorghum as a plant is already a very resilient plant. It doesn't need huge amount of water and sort of mm. grows where normally you would not be able to grow food. And then the seed that we created uh, is even more so, more resilient. And that's important because if you do biofuel, uh, the first argument that you might get is that we're competing with food and people go hungry while we have green fuel for the shipping industry. Mm. And that's clearly not what we want to do and that's not what we do. And the two arguments at least are we're not competing with food because we're creating food. And by the way, we're also doing it on land that would not otherwise be used for any kind of food. Mm. So that's kind of the interesting aspect for us. And it's important to preempt any criticism that otherwise you know, would be justified in that we're not competing with food. In, in the biomass, in the biofuel, in the bioenergy field, that's an important thought. Yes, yeah, so it's all incremental. Um, over and above, and it's a better use of land that otherwise couldn't be used yes, for another purpose. Yes, that's right. So exactly. it's, I mean, it's a very um, mm. kind of self-fulfilling, you know, circle here, isn't it? As well, in terms of yes. you know the production side and and the impact. And and you mm. mentioned shipping um, mm. as being sort of well the the coal prior coal um, yes, uh, sectors, mm. shipping. Yep. What other sectors would you see in that roadmap that you've got ahead where, where this could be very useful? Well, it can be used for direct uh, energy creation. So there are some companies that look at decentralized energy creation, mm. particularly in countries like Indonesia, Philippines, where you have, you know, Malaysia, we have a lot of islands and it's difficult to reach them with pure central mm. uh, energy creation. So that's where we can use, you know, a few thousand hectares to produce energy just for local consumption, because oh, wow. the coal and the shipping obviously would be more for, for export or would be picked up, but you know, would be used outside perhaps the growing area. And the pellets themselves can be used in many different industries, so cement industry, steel industry, anybody who uses energy mm. currently from, from non-green sources can, can really use that. Mm. And by the way, it's, it's considered green because um, the plant during the growth process captures the CO2 
and that would sort of reduce it. But then when it gets combusted, when it's used, it releases the CO2. But because it's done in the same time frame, it's considered carbon neutral. I take it out, but I put it back in, or I would say, you know, I put it back, but I have just taken it out. So therefore yeah. that piece is, is carbon neutral. And then because we leave the roots in the ground, that actually makes it carbon negative because the roots stay in the ground and during the growth of that plant, you can imagine if you have five, six, seven meter high above the ground, mm -hmm. you need two meters of roots to, roots to support that. And we intentionally leave that and we don't touch it. So that CO2 stays in the ground forever. Mm -hmm. And that makes the whole thing probably carbon negative and certainly carbon neutral. Uh, because you also need to consider during the process you might use a tractor or harvesting machine that uses non-green diesel because maybe we cannot change this in the short term. That also needs to be offset by the, the carbon credit or by the carbon that we capture in the roots. Mm. So the whole thing needs to be carbon neutral in order to make any sense for the consumers because nobody would use you know, biomethanol or, or green cold pellets uh, for fun. They only do it because you know they want to be able to say uh, believingly, you know, credibly that it's green. Mm. Gosh, it really is a fascinating area and very cutting mm. edge. This, you know, it's 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 industry leading, isn't it, in this space? It is, but it's also in some ways using you know very old you know farming. Yes. Is in, <laughs> yeah. in, in Australia, there are the places. I mean, Australia continues to amaze me. The place is four hundred fifty thousand hectares just using for for grain sorghum in in the east side in Queensland. Wow. So people have been doing obviously farming for a long time. Mm. People try to do you know biofuel a while back, uh, but it's kind of of the first time that we're doing it in this form, in this combination of food and fuel, and also, of course, using you know the latest high-tech methods to, to do it efficiently. Yeah. So yeah, it's both. It's it's really old, and you know the, the nature's capability of capturing CO2, producing energy in a very efficient way. You know, through sort of nature's way, <laughs> it's very different from you know from nuclear, from solar, from wind kind of things. So mm. It fits into I think this portfolio of, of green energy sources. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the whole ESG agenda is huge. You yes. know, it's huge for, mm -hmm. for particularly for big corporates. And, and while it's not necessarily under legislation yet mm. I think that's coming personally I think yeah. you know certainly yeah. in the UK I can't speak about sort of some of the Asian mm. economies but I do think mm. that more and more that's going to become you know such a key driver of large organizations yes and um, how does this fit into that I mean it, obviously it's an environmental piece but you know yeah. Possibly it has a broader reach socially as well, um, I would expect. Yes, so I, I agree. There are some, you're absolutely right, I think. It's not just about energy. Um, and so one of the intangible benefits that our approach also delivers is, particularly in Australia, probably in other areas as well, but in Australia I know for sure, is to be well received by the, the, the Aboriginal, the Indigenous community, the First Nations, mm. which in Australia play an increasing role and it's, uh, it's very well supported and, and received by government, by the population, by those uh, communities themselves. And compared to solar and wind, so you know, oil majors in Western Australia have suggested to put huge amount, thousands of square kilometers full with solar and wind to then produce green energy. Mm. Well, that sounds, you know, sounds like a good idea in general, except the aboriginals don't really like their land with which they have a spiritual connection be covered with solar panels, as efficient that might be. So our approach to do sorghum plants is both well received for the, the indigenous belief system, but also offers jobs that are much more interesting because it's agricultural jobs as opposed to wind you need 
indeed highly skilled maintenance people that probably come from outside the country in Australia mm -hmm. in a sense. So there is sort of a very strong um, uh, social aspect because we should be able to deliver new sources of income. The Aboriginals in, in Australia have been badly treated since, you know, for 200 years, but even in the 60s and 70s, I think, when the mining companies put them in reservations, the kids were taken away, they lost sources of income. So now, Australia, many people are looking for new sources of income and purpose. And I think we can offer this with sorghum approach to create energy and food in a better way than using solar and wind or some of the other technologies. Mm, yeah, so when you when you look back, you were born in Hamburg, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm, so a, I'm a hamburger. <laughs> a hamburger, we've got a hamburger on our hands. So as a, as a young hamburger, um, <laughs> I love that, that's great. Um, how have you ended up in Singapore? Because you describe yourself quite, you know, very um, aptly as a, as a bit of a global native. You know, you, you sort of, yeah. you've lived and, and ran businesses all over the world. Um, but what was that journey from Hamburg well, as journey, a young boy <laughs> to where you are now? I guess as a young hamburger sort of finishing university, I think my, my first impulse was to to go away, to, to leave Germany. I think that's kind of a natural thing for, for many people that they want to, you know, not just travel somewhere, which at the time was also not as easy today, but to experience, you know, new cultures, new languages and so forth. So the furthest I could get away immediately was only Switzerland. <laughs> so I did some lot of software development during my university time. So I became a software engineer, as they call it these days. At the time it was programmer in Switzerland. So developed banking, trading systems and so forth, then joined Accenture then moved from Switzerland with Accenture to, to New York. Was in New York for a long time, which was great. I always wanted to be in, in America. Mm. <laughs> and then joined a strategy consultancy called Pusser and Hamilton. Uh, then sort of uh, moved uh, back to Europe, to London from New York. I thought there's Monty Python, the Queen, this should be like <laughs> entertaining, and so it was. <laughs> and then after, you know, I did a lot of consulting there, and then I moved from, from London. Also from London, I worked a lot in Europe. And, and once they found out that I speak German a little bit, so I had to do lots of stuff in Germany as well, in Switzerland. Yeah. And then I moved to Hong Kong, uh, because um, and, sorry, in, in, in London I worked for, for Viant and then for Shazam. Okay, yes. And for, for, the, for that particular, for Shazam, I, I did a lot of work internationally. I did the business development for a few years. And that sort of opened my eyes and my interest in Asia. And that's when I moved to Hong Kong, um, long enough to get permanent residency there. Um, and then uh, after Hong Kong in 2014, BP uh, offered me this job in digital innovation and that's, that was based in Singapore. So then I moved to Singapore and now I joined Binex. And now, first I thought I'm running out of countries to go to. <laughs> Where else should I go? But now with, you know, because we're starting the operations in Australia, so actually I'm spending a lot of time in Australia. So mm. that's kind of uh, the, my, my journey, I guess, geographically and otherwise. Yeah, um, what have you learned um, culturally? Because, you know, when you, when you, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege to, to do business to live, to spend time, I believe, in, in all these different parts of the world. I find it fascinating, you know, the yeah, whole cultural yeah. experience. And it makes you, well, for me, I found when I was, you know, running the emerging markets for TUI in particular, mm. it really honed my emotional intelligence, having to be able to adapt and be respectful of the local cultures, etc. But from your experience of being in America, you know, Europe, obviously, Asia for a good chunk of time. Mm. How has it shaped your leadership, do you think, um, having had all those different cultural experiences? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one thing that it does, because I think everybody growing up, doesn't matter in which time or which place, grows up sort of with a relatively closed 
um, set of experiences and people and, mm. and, and variety of sort. I think it's better these days than it was when I grew up. Uh, but that also comes with a lot of biases and, you know, and, and ignorance. And I think as soon as you go to different countries, even in Switzerland, you learn that <laughs> there are different people with different languages and different cultural beliefs. And, and in New York certainly is such a melting point. Yes. <laughs> uh, we actually in New York the first time uh, I became aware that people consider me as a German. Before you know, that I never thought you know, I'm a German because this idea of nation state and identity uh, didn't really exist when I grew up in Germany, and I think it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> when I came to New York, you know, I was, oh, you're from Germany. Um, and then, of course, you know, moving in, in London, it was interesting because it's, it's both a melting point, but you still have sort of interesting sort of class, uh, mm. class structure, perhaps. And then Asia, of course, is another huge world. So it was fascinating because even when I worked in Switzerland for Accenture, uh, because that's such an international organization that you work with many different uh, people from different backgrounds. And then, of course, coming to Asia opens things so much wider. So I, what it does to my leadership style, I think it's just a lot of tolerance and um, you know, just awareness of, of variety mm. uh, that you don't think about that anymore. I think hopefully it does away with you know, a lot of the biases and that, that we have, the prejudices that we have. Um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's really a good thing that everybody should <laughs> experience as much international exposure and, and variety of people. And Singapore, of course, itself is a fantastic place because mm. it's such a you know, multi-ethnic, religious, racial, uh, in-harmony uh, place, which is you know, really fascinating as, as well. Mm. What's been the hardest thing, do you think, for you through your kind of very interesting career in life, moving, you know, working all these different organizations? What's been the most difficult kind of time for you, would you say? Um, the most, I mean, the, the biggest handicap that personally I have is my lack of languages and the lack of talent to learn languages. Because I should have learned, you know, Cantonese or Mandarin when I was in Asia and I just couldn't figure out the tonal languages. Mm. So I admire people that, you know, have the exposure early and the talent, uh, like my brother, for example, uh, to speak many different languages. Because I think that would be another level to really understand the culture. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, in, okay, in, in New York less so, but certainly in Asia, I think it would be really helpful to speak different languages. Most difficult time was always um, when we were building something from scratch, like we did at Shazam, like we did at, you know, at Vine, so the dot-com era, and in some of the consulting. And then uh, you build a fantastic team, and then some economic event happens, you know, the dot-com crash, or just some another crisis, and then you need to let people go that you were very close with, that you worked with, that you sometimes brought into the company. And that's, you know, the most pain, painful thing because it's so much fun and you're building up a fantastic capability, which is all about people, whether technology is kind of a secondary thing. Mm -hmm. And then you have to, to, to let that go. So when the dot-com crash happened, um, I had a team in Munich, about 30 people or so, uh, that we had to let go because, you know, the company was closing one office of the other. But then the good thing is there were some really good uh, technology developers. And then I could at least offer some of them the opportunity to become the core technology team of Shazam in London. Mm, okay, so that's yeah. kind of nice if you then I can bring some people. I think that happens also. So that's kind of the hardest times, I think, would be those. Mm, yeah, and, and, and on a personal basis, when you're moving, you know, and you're moving, you know, families, you've got to make new friends, you, you know, because, yeah. you know, I think the thing is with business and when you've, you've been in very senior roles, mm. um, it can be quite a lonely place, <laughs> you know, at the yeah. leadership at the top. It's not always easy. And having the right support network around you, you know, family, mm. friends, all of that kind of stuff. And when you're 
you're moving like you have through through your kind of career and mm. um, how is that how has that um, played out from a, a sort of more personal side of your life with this balance of doing these big jobs moving mm. countries and having to kind of have a, a life outside of work as well. I think it's actually very positive because I think for family for kids in particular mm. it's a very positive experience to go to different uh, countries you know, as long as you have a school system and you can manage sort of a transition from one, you know, syllabus to another one, well, but there are enough, enough international schools. So I think actually it's, it's, a, it's a gift for children if you can expose them to many different reasons for the same terms, so, you know, variety and, and, and lack of biases. And, and I think becoming global citizen at an early age, hopefully with multiple languages or so, I think that's, that's fantastic. Mm. So I don't think that's, that's a problem in most cases. It's really a positive thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. And let's talk about um, digital innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, in a bit more, in a bit more. One sort of, of my favourite subjects. I know, I know exactly. Well, we were chatting before we pressed mm-hmm. record on certain topics, and it is the mm-hmm. world is so fast moving, isn't it? So, what have been the most the most game changing projects or initiatives that you've sort of led or been involved in historically? Let's look back first, yeah. and then we'll look forward in terms of some of the things that are happening in today's world and, and further down the track. But when you look back, mm-hmm. what have been the sort of the innovations that you've been involved in that have really had the biggest impact, do you think? Yeah, I mean, one was that I was involved in sort of the late 90s in the evolution of the internet and, you know, the dot-com, the, the website kind of things. So that was clearly a big disruptor and I was, you know, happy to and lucky to be part of that. Um, then the, another interesting development was uh, virtual reality back in 2007. 2006, 2007 and following, where I don't know if you remember Second Life, it was kind of a sort of a game version, but actually at the time I did a TEDx talk about this too. My, my son was just 10 years old and he was playing World of Warcraft. And when I'm observing what kids were doing in World of Warcraft, which is in an abstract sense, collaboration in a virtual reality space with multiple people from all sorts of backgrounds as avatars but very goal-oriented, okay, it was a game, but, you know, very interesting. And then, at the time, sort of Second Life came out, and one of the funny things, I was I just joined PA Consulting, a British consulting, management mm-hmm. consulting firm, and uh, <laughs> I somehow had the idea to suggest to the, to the, the chairman of the, the management that we should open an office in Second Life for PA Consulting. And then we, we were not the only one, there were Reuters and a few other brands that did this. And that was kind of really interesting because we could explore how you could use a virtual reality environment um, to, for collaboration and for a much richer experience. Now initially people just put sort of websites into the 3D space and that didn't quite do it or just build empty sort of pretty looking buildings. But we started to explore how we could use it for collaboration. We had onboarding of recruits that were joining PA Consulting in these virtual spaces from very different locations. And that time, remember, there was no Oculus. It was just using a screen, mm. like you would do in World of Warcraft. But you had spatial audio already, so you could hear the voice of the avatar from where you would see the avatar. And it became very immersive, even in the absence of these virtual reality goggles, which didn't exist at the time. And then, so that was kind of another big disruption that I could see coming. Now, it hasn't, <laughs> obviously, it stayed sort of with the early adapters, but maybe now with the latest announcement from, from Apple, the quality of the technology 
and the ease of use, because it was the big hurdle was that, you know, the early adapters and the, the younger folks, they could do this, but the grown-ups couldn't get used to that. Now, of course, Apple coming in, it all will be very, you know, very easy to use. So sometimes it takes, you know, 15 years or so, perhaps, for technology that showed the potential, haven't really fundamentally changed much, to become perhaps more mainstream. So I think, so this whole virtual reality, um, spatial uh, thing, I think, is something that I can see will be the next next disruption. And then when we were at BP, we were also obviously looking at you know, emerging technologies yeah. uh, and then assessing the impact of those technology on the business of, of BP, but across the, whole, across the whole field. And we were looking early at AI and, and chatbot, for example. And I remember that I always sort of was not getting too excited about chatbots because at the time there were, and you know where I'm going with that probably, yeah. <laughs> obviously they were kind of very limited and annoying, didn't do much. But it's another thing that now, obviously, with you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT, and other things, that same technology has taken on an entirely new dimension and yeah. will probably be a disruptor on the same level of the internet itself, I think. Uh, VR, I think, is more kind of a niche thing in that context. But so those were, you know, big disruptive technology. Drone technology, and actually not, one shouldn't say it's an individual technology, but it's the the collaboration or the, the, the combination of these technologies. You have AI on one side, computer vision, you combine that with drone technology, mm. and then you get very interesting and autonomous vehicles. Um, and then quantum computing and quantum sensing, I think. So the, the quantum technology, I think, is the next thing that's, you know, it's being worked on. And at BP, we're you know, involved on a personal basis. I'm, I'm involved with some of the companies there. And I, I can see that you know, being the next big, big disruptor. Mm. But probably also not you know, as a standalone thing. But the AI that we see today, which does not yet run on quantum computers, put that together with quantum computing, and you probably have another dimension of really interesting uh, capabilities. But I think the key thing is not just the isolated technologies, it's these things working together and sort of cross-fertilizing each other. Mm. So let's talk about ChatGPT in a bit more detail and OpenAI <laughs> because there has been a lot of kind of coverage and a lot of yeah. sort of media um, flurry around, is it good, is it bad, is it stealing jobs, you know, and mm -hmm. we say, well, gosh, you know, when the car was invented, anyone that had a, you know, a pony and trap would have <laughs> thought, you mm -hmm. know, so technology is always going to be evolving, isn't it? And there will always be, my, my take on it is there will always be jobs that disappear as a result of technology but then mm. it will create a whole new sector as well with other you know jobs and, and employment opportunities etc but chat gpt mm. in particular let's let, what's your view on on that and the way it's going to go and is it good is it bad how can it transform things you said it could be the most the most disruptive next yeah, stage I, for I, us i think so it's hard to say whether it's good or bad. I would say it's inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's somehow <laughs> pointless to see, you know, whether we can direct or stop or pause it or whatever. Mm. It's, you know, the train has, has, has left the station. It's interesting because when I, I posted something on LinkedIn, uh, somebody uh, was asking, oh, did ChatGPT write that? And actually the answer was, yes, I used it heavily, not just, but not sort of in the terms of writing something because it's a dialogue that you use you yeah. know, and you improve it, you fine tune it. So it really, you work with this thing to come up with a result. Now, clearly that has been heavily used by ChatGPT. But then I asked, well, when you wrote something, did you use a spell checker? 
Probably, you didn't write. Did you use maybe a grammar checker that made suggestions? Probably, and you never asked about this. So in other words, we already, sort of certain technology mm. we take for granted, we don't even think about. You certainly used a computer to write it, you didn't handwrite it. Yes, <laughs> It's yes. not the Gutenberg press, you know. You use all <laughs> these technologies already that of course are also AI driven. It just happens that ChatGPT just does another leapfrog of, you know, another magnitude of, that's why it's so obvious. But of course we've been using, I mean, Google has all these predictive writing already. So it's just sort of another step, but it's a very big step, I think. So yeah, I think it will have an interesting impact. I think for the most part, really good because it equalizes the, the playing field. So for me, English writing is not my native language, it's not my, my strength. I have some ideas I want to express. So for me, it's like a brain amplifier. Mm. It saves me a lot of time, but not just a lot of time. It also, I think, improves the conciseness and you know, succinctness of my communication, which a good English writer could do without ChatGPT. For me, it was always a challenge. I always had to ask my son to help me out. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, he's busy, so now I can do that. And I think that's also true for, you know, for the developing world, that they can all of a sudden do stuff where you know, big resourceful companies could do it in the past. So I think it sort of democratizes that. What it does for jobs, you know, it probably goes in, in both directions. So it will have a positive impact on people who did not have that capability. Now they can have, so they can focus maybe on the business. Mm. But for call centers in some of the emerging world countries like the Philippines or so, it might eliminate, you know, those, uh, those jobs, but there will be others coming. So it's mm. inevitable. I think it's more good for, than bad. And I think yeah, it has a fantastic potential for communication and improvement and, and productivity and so forth. Mm, yeah, and, and it, I mean, it's, it's, it's really clever, isn't it? Because you can, write, you know, put in whatever instruction you get, you know, mm. um, the output, and then you can say, uh, can you write that in the style of, <laughs> yeah. you know, so... Yeah. Archie Lafferty, which is my favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. And then, of course, it's intelligent, isn't it? So, whereas if you go on to, my understanding is, if you go on to Google and do a search for something, mm. the next time you go and do that search, it doesn't remember the last search that you did for it. So it's pulling up the results sort of fresh again, like, yeah. It's the first time, whereas chat GPT, the more you it kind of you work with it, it, it remembers. It becomes, but there's still limitations today in terms of how much you can feed in and so forth. Yeah. Um, but those things, you know, will quickly disappear. The mm. next version, you know, when I mean, people criticize, you know, certain aspects today, well, just wait another six months or so, and then that will that will quickly disappear. But it's also, I mean, the the capabilities for self-reflection. So if you get an answer when she's saying, do you think that's the best you can do? <laughs> Mm. It's, you know, but there's still, you know, the hallucinations. So I did something to, to just some, some research to figure out what's, how much landmass would be available for our purposes to grow sorghum. And it came up with, you know, showed me all the calculations, you know, this trigonometry things, how it came up with this. But then it made a basic mistake in calculating from square kilometers to hectares, should be 100. And it was, you know, the one thing that was obvious to me. And I said, well, that's clearly wrong. And then ChatGPT, I call her Lily, by the way, she said, <laughs> oh, my bad, sorry, you're right. <laughs> Let me fix it. <laughs> so that was clearly a sort of a mistake. Yeah. But now I'm sure, you know, everybody else will get it right. So that's yes. kind of the capability. So, you know, she learns from all these things currently will quickly you know get much better but <laughs> yeah no it is it's fascinating and you know one of the things that i um, spend quite a lot of time with with organizations is dealing with change 
Yes. Yeah. And um, so I'm quite interested to get your your thoughts as you were talking about BP. I'm thinking right, huge, huge global conglomerate. Your mm. role was very much in the innovation space, mm. and you know a lot of organisations, in particular big organisations, struggle with mm. um, not stifling creativity, stifling innovation. So in mm. your experience, how have you helped big organisations? Drive forward innovation, change, etc. At the same time as you know the big machine of the business still running, mm. because you often find that one, you know, big brother, little brother, kind of, and normally the innovation can lose because the big machine kind of doesn't get it or it doesn't give it mm. the right environment to flourish. But mm. really interested in your thoughts on how do you drive innovation and change in larger organisations, given that you've got a lot of legacy normally yes yeah that's that's clearly a challenge well um, one thing is you need to address concerns that the organization has mm. but what was interesting for me it's not just cost reduction and savings and the economics particularly in oil and gas and shipping safety and, and the, the well-being of people working in these harsh conditions mm. is often the most important point and a lot of technology innovation these days can help with it so for example in shipping uh, even at BP we looked at can you use drones within oil tanks these big cargo tanks that currently people work with um, rope access with you know dangerous activity to have humans doing the inspection well why can't we use autonomous robots or autonomous drones tether drones in these spaces which was technically very challenging but that was something that in that case would address health and safety. Yeah. Or if, you know, for, for Eastern Pacific, when we uh, introduced virtual reality training for seafarers to deal with LNG as a bunker fuel, and that was relatively new, so not many people had experience with that. And it's a challenging task. It can be dangerous if you make mistakes. So you need to work with multiple engineers together, both intellectually and, and physically. And virtual reality, particularly during the time of COVID, was the perfect way to get people trained uh, in these environments. So in other words, if it addresses um, health and safety concerns or well-being concerns, you know, social media to connect people on ships with people on shore, those things then get adopted pretty quickly because they address a need that everybody has. And it's sort of, you know, that goes faster. The other way, particularly in large corporates, that we do for, for adoption is to start with pilot projects. Mm. So finding, uh, on the technology side it's easy, but finding business uh, senior executives that supportive of particular projects. And then you do a small pilot, you use it to demonstrate the value and the effectiveness of this particular technology. And then it gets adopted by others uh, mm. quickly. That's sort of what we did at BP and it's probably good for large corporates. In sort of shipping companies tend to be smaller, so they are the way that this Techstar Accelerator program worked for innovation, we brought 25 startups through that, was to work very closely with the individual vessels. So we did tests on ships and worked with you know, all the, uh, the ship managers within the organization. Mm -hmm. And that's also some way in small organizations that you can buy into, buy in, into the technology. Mm -hmm. That's probably sort of some ideas of working with, with change. Another one is I also worked on the consulting side. So sometimes uh, companies hire consultants because the ex you believe the external entity more than the internal. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. that's that's another way of, of doing yeah that. yeah absolutely I mean I like what your what your idea around almost having a almost having a minimal viable product that you kind of test learn yes. yeah. adapt in a pilot that's sort of lower risk almost to, to mm. the, so the, the big machine of the big part of the business isn't isn't interrupted and then you yeah. can test and I suppose it's don't tell me show me 
yes, as, yeah. as a concept, yeah. isn't it, really? And then people mm. go, ah, oh, right, interesting, okay. I get this now, I can see the potential yeah. because you've shown the power of it and then of course you can do a rollout, can't and you? And you can actually, absolutely, and you can actually also, you find that in particular in oil and gas and, and shipping, um, shipping even more so perhaps, people are very used to make decisions with complex risk situations because mm -hmm. that's, you know, you are in these environments and therefore that actually can translate easily into innovation because if I'm proposing to bring a particular, you know, drones for inspection, well, you know, maybe other organizations would say, I don't want to change anything. But shipping oil and gas people are very open to that and they do it in a way that is, you know, that mitigates the risk. So they would typically say, okay, this is the idea, I can see the benefits. These are the risks, this is the probability of this happening. If it happens, this is the severity and this is the mitigation, what we do to prevent this from happening. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a typical way that people in these industrial uh, industries, that the, the way they think, and that it adapts you know, very easily to, to innovation and, and transition. Mm, no, it's fascinating. So do you consider yourself a disruptor, Klaus? It's a little bit of a buzzword. <laughs> so I would say, you know, innovator, definitely. But disrupting is, you know, such a big label. Uh, I'm not sure if I would apply this to myself. <laughs> okay, okay. So as a child, were you innovative or disruptive? <laughs> <laughs> so long ago that I don't remember. Well, well I think, you know, my, my father bought me a typewriter. <laughs> right. That ages me a bit. And that, but that was interesting because, you know, I started using a typewriter as opposed to handwriting, which was yeah. <laughs> at the time, you know, more innovative perhaps. So yeah, I think maybe not innovative, but curious. I think curiosity was something that I think all children have. I mm. cannot imagine one child that just gets suppressed at some point. So I certainly was curious, you know, from early days on. And that then sometimes translate into trying out new things and taking risks and you know doing new things and enhance innovation potentially. Mm -hmm. um, and your parents are your parents still still with us? Class? No, they're not. They're oh, not, okay. Uh, so um, yeah, it's hard. But they were both teachers. Were they? I was going to ask yes. what, what 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 field they were in. Yeah. Where you... They were both teachers, and my mother was actually one of the the few women uh, to go to university after the war. Wow. Uh, so I think she went to yeah. There were not many many women at the time, and then she worked. Uh, as a teacher all her life. Uh, so it was actually sort of a dual income couple, which at the time was, you know, not the, mm. the common way to do things. No, absolutely. So that's, I think, also meant that I, you know, from that environment, I, for me, women and men were always equal. They're working, you know, they're contributing. Um, so I was never in a household where, you know, a woman would only do housework or something. And I think that translate, of course, that's the way it is. It should be. And why would anybody view it in a different way? So that probably determined, you know, that aspect of my life in early days. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you make a really, really important point around diversity. And you, you, were, you grew up in a family where, you know, as you say, equal, both bringing money into the, into the house and, you know, yeah. non-stereotypical non probably roles at the time for, yeah. for your parents. Yeah. Um, how important is, is diversity, equity and inclusion in your business? Oh, it's, it's usually, <laughs> it's, it's important that I couldn't even think about, you know, not doing it that way. So, you know, in, in consulting, it was always, uh, without sort of necessarily making it a bit, big deal, but people were, because as a consulting company, you only succeed if you have the smartest people that work together that are self-motivated mm. and you would not make a distinction based on gender or any other aspect because it makes business sense. In BP in particular, 
it was proven that diversity would increase the economic benefits. Yeah. Uh, so BP, you know, it, it looked across all the aspects, gender, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, and so forth. And it was interesting to see how a company like BP managed to promote those values in countries where that might be illegal. Mm. Uh, so that's you know interesting challenge. I think BP managed this really well, staying you know uh, in, in line with the local laws and doing business but at the same time, promoting uh, these values. Uh, so that's something that for me is, is it's kind of a no-brainer, and I'm still surprised actually that people still you know talk about and it still needs to be addressed as a challenge. <laughs> it's like I thought you know we'd be done with this, but I know. <laughs> how do you feel as a, as, a, as a woman? I'm like, really, are we still talking about gender diversity? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really, have we not got past that? But yeah. unfortunately, not. You know, we've made lots of progress. But I mean, if I look at like the top 100 companies in the UK, FTSE 100 businesses, eight yeah. percent have got female CEOs. Yeah, eight percent. Yeah. I think there's more men yeah. called. John, um, that are CEOs of the top 100 companies, and there are women. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. But you're right, I think, mm. for you, because you grew up in a, in a world as a child where there was this equity, and, it, and mm. you know, it was sort of like, well, it's, it's not even an issue. Why, why we, you know, mm. but yeah, but it is, it's, it's challenging, I think, for a lot, for some businesses are still. Yeah, it's too, I mean, and you can't change it in certain industry overnight. So oil and no. gas, obviously, you know, used to be very male dominated. Mm. Um, but increasingly, that was very actively managed and is very actively managed. In shipping, it's even more male dominated. If you look how many seafarers, how many of those are women, yeah, uh, and you can't change this overnight. Now, BP did a pretty good job, EPS is doing, but you just can't change this overnight. However, the industry is changing partly through technology. Now, in shipping, you have much more technology that allows remote operating, remote monitoring, and remote operating of certain aspects uh, uh, from shore. And that, of course, means that you need different skills and they're becoming much more important in running a ship. It used to be that those were isolated, you know, things that are not in communication and send the telex once a day where they are. Yeah. <laughs> and today you have real-time monitoring through satellites, through AI systems, and they need to be administered from shore. And that's, of course, a job that, you know, is totally uh, gender neutral and where you find, you know, much more diversity. So often I think it's through technology that takes away the, the, the value of, you know, pure muscle power, which, of course, is also false in some uh, but I think those things will help to, to change this over time, the changing nature of the jobs themselves. Mm. Yeah, I haven't thought of it through that lens, actually, of technology being a driver for, for diversity, equity. And you find in, in quantum, yeah. so some of the quantum uh, computings uh, here in Singapore, in general, you find lots of, of females, uh, mm. scientists, mathematicians and leadership. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, particularly in the scientific field, I think you, you find much more diversity already. Yeah. And it will, will change. Good. And, and, and when it, well, just coming back to Binex, um, obviously you're, you're on a journey with the business. Um, mm. You've got some really amazing kind of, you know, progress that you've made and the road ahead looks, looks incredibly positive in terms of what yeah. you're doing for the planet, mm. but also for smart solutions, cost-effective solutions for business, because we mm. always want to know how's it going to affect the bottom line as well in yes, whatever absolutely. we're doing, unfortunately. That, that still has to be a priority for most business leaders. Um, you're going to be going on a fund, you're, you're fundraising, aren't you? Yes, to, that's now. right. So, yep. so do you want to talk a little bit around, um, around that aspect, the approach you're taking, mm. uh, anyone that might actually have a bit of spare cash and want to invest <laughs> in Binex, <laughs> they can track you down. But um, it, is, it is an interesting journey that you're on. So there may be other people listening to this who are entrepreneurs and are, are actually about to go on a similar mm. journey. Yep. So I think, you know, to share some of your thoughts on the approach you're taking and, and how that could help other people as well. Yeah. So. Absolutely, yeah. So, 
as I mentioned, the, the, the R&D is happening in Japan. Yeah. The individual, the, the, um, uh, the Japanese investors are the private uh, backers of the business uh, to date, and they will continue to do so. But to really grow, we're commercializing the business through Singapore, and Singapore is a fantastic uh, place to, to do that sort of thing. And many other companies are doing that. We're starting the operation, a proof of concept, a trial, a, a pilot, however you want to call it, in Australia. Why Australia? Because there is so much land that is suitable for us. There are some people that own a lot of land and have access to a lot of land, so it makes it very efficient. A lot of support from the government for energy transition, industry interest from the coal power plant as well as the shipping that would come by and do bunkering of biomethanol. There. So Australia is kind of the first operational location. But of course, the sorghum grows within 5 to 25 degrees latitude north and south of the equator. So if you look at the uh, and I have ChatGPT helping with that. <laughs> so if you look at you know, the, the, the planet, uh, there is plenty of land that is marginal, that is not used for anything else, that can be used for our purposes. So our growth strategy is, besides Australia, which will certainly deliver great value, to go to other places uh, in, on the planet. South America, we have good dialogues already. I was at the VivaTech uh, last week in, in Paris, a mm. big conference there and uh, got approached by a number of, of individuals from, from Saudi, from Bahrain, from Morocco, from a few other countries uh, in the Middle East and, and North Africa. And that's of course very interesting for us as well as those countries have declared and are going through ambitions, aspirations in terms of energy transitions and doing you know, not just oil and gas. And our approach for, for energy creation would fit very well. And also so in Saudi for example they're building these new mega cities and having even the green aspect of our sorghum surrounding these, these mega cities, reducing the temperature, doing something good for the soil, as well as creating green energy. So there was you know, interest in, in that aspect. Uh, yes, and we're doing fundraising, we're talking, we're starting really to the process now. We're looking for significant investment. Uh, because what we do is pretty capex intensive. You know, it's the nature of harvesting. First, you need to, to put the stuff in the, in the ground before you can uh, do that. We need some you know, production lines to build and so forth. So we're looking for capital um, from shipping lines, from oil and gas companies, from some of the oil traders we're talking to, um, but also probably private equity uh, mm. investors from you know, these different regions uh, that would be interested in impact investments, both energy as well as the social aspects. Mm, fantastic. So, so you're sort of in the middle of all of this, these conversations. Exactly, at the yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. Mm. And, and what advice would you give to someone in maybe another sector or another business that's also about to you know, maybe go on a fundraising round, maybe they've never done it before and it's a new, new approach for them, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, well, you need to address a real concern that people have. Now, sometimes those things are changing you know, relatively quickly. Um, if you can go into a market that doesn't require very long sales cycles, or if it's a new market, like we're lucky in our case, those are you know, big industries, but you know, our aspect is, is kind of a new one. Um, I think you know, some technology or some secret ingredients that is unique mm -hmm. or difficult to replicate, or being, first, you know, being simply the first to market yes. and tying up those relationships uh, is another aspect. Uh, so I think, yeah, not shying away from something. So to some extent that I don't know so much about agriculture and, and all these, these aspects, I think in some ways it's a good thing mm. because you know, I, I go in and say, why can we not do it this way? <laughs> Uh, so I think you know the team and, and, and aggressive and curious approach and 
and not taking no for an answer or you know being negative I think that's that's helpful mm, yeah and would you would you typically have almost like a, a hit list of, of target you know organizations to have your conversations with whether it's you know a particular industry and or your private equity or VCs or angels you know would you have you almost got you know a sort of a plan if you like around those different conversations yes definitely and so yeah. we're targeting particularly the sectors that I mentioned mm. and actually we're also using uh, LinkedIn uh, in a very uh, very productive way because so many people outside certain countries so Japan Korea I think not so many people are on LinkedIn but sort of in many other countries a lot of people are on LinkedIn and using that increasingly as not a marketing but as an engagement platform yeah. so you can have a post uh, about you know some of the messages and you could have this on your, your website but then you engage with people and some might and this could be critical questions but then you can engage with these uh, with these people that engage with you in an almost public way mm. which you know so it's a little bit risky perhaps for people because on a website nobody can you know <laughs> criticize what you're doing so it's a social media for business which is, is really helpful for us and it has lots of built-in tools that I wasn't aware of that allows us to reach people that you know would be relevant so it makes it then very relevant dialogues and that's something that is sort of a tool that we're, we're using currently quite a bit. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think the you know, power of social media, right? Um, yes. You can use yeah. like anything, you yeah. can do, you do it for, use it for good or, or, or for, for not so good. Obviously, there's aspects around social media that are difficult for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. But I think I agree with you with LinkedIn. I mean, the other thing I would mm -hmm. say when it comes to, you know, I use LinkedIn quite a lot to, to engage mm -hmm. for the reasons mm -hmm. that you're talking about. But the, the interesting thing is you never know who's watching. Because <laughs> yes, very, often, <laughs> very often, you know, I'll, someone will mm. approach me, uh, yeah. you know, maybe they're interested in me going in and doing some advisory work for their business or, you know, they want yes. to be mentored yeah. by me or whatever it might be, or they want to invest mm. with us, you know, a whole bunch of reasons. Um, mm. But very often, they've never liked a post. Yes. They've it. never commented, but no. they've just been kind of watching and sort yes. of observing what you're doing, building your credibility, you know, so you never know. Absolutely. That's very true because I had people approach me. <laughs> on conference saying oh Klaus you know we like your, your LinkedIn post but those were sometimes say government people mm. that cannot and should not favor a particular company yes. so they would be very careful and staying neutral but you're right they're not only seeing your original post they see the dialogue yeah. and that's sort of you know they take some message but it's a risky there might be some you know well justified criticism or some troll that you know so it's 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 an interesting, but it's again, it's also part of, I think of risk taking to to do this public engagement uh, yes, with yeah. people. Yeah. Hey, the reality is, you know, people are going to judge you anyway. So, <laughs> right, so, too, yeah. so, so I always say, well, you may as well mm. put yourself out to the world, you know, congruent to your values, but it, to stand for something. You're yeah, not there to yeah. be everyone to be liked by everyone necessarily. You might not be everyone's cup of tea, but yes. actually, they're going to judge yeah. you anyway. So you may as well put yourself out in the world. Yeah, but it's got to be authentic. Sometimes people use you know meaningless jargon, particularly sort of in the digital space, and, yeah. <laughs> and then that could backfire and it's kind of annoying. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's it, isn't it? The jargon. Whereas, like you were saying, you know, you don't come from an agricultural background, so mm. that's that's good because actually you you've not got those natural sort of blockers, you know. And I think if you can put yourself in the in the mind of the end user and if you can explain it to you know very mm. simply to a child well then actually that's probably that's at least probably it's a good the, starting point yeah. I mean you still have to be careful that you know you need to hire people that know what they're talking Absolutely. about otherwise yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can only go so far without the, the, yeah. the in-depth subject matter knowledge but yeah you can make it part of the team then
Yeah, especially if you're trying to engage on a global platform. I mean, are you going to COP28 in, in Dubai um, in November? That's November, um, December, isn't it? You probably should. Yeah, I haven't sort of done the, the travel plans yet. Right now we're focusing mostly sort of on getting our things going, but probably a good idea. I think I think it'll be a great forum, and, and mm. in particular when you're thinking around, you know, the parts of the world that you might mm. expand right, in. Right, that's true. It's an you know, a lot yeah. going on in the Middle East in terms of investment opportunities, but innovation, it's, it's yes. a really kind yeah. of agile, exciting place to be, I think, at the moment. Yeah, so that's a good idea. And you have know, lots of people that, you know... Perfect for you, COP28. Um, and of course, mm. you've got world leaders there. You know, you've got quite a rich, rich yeah. attendance, haven't you? Yeah. And it's high yeah, profile. That's, yeah, I agree. That's a good idea. Might see you there. <laughs> Thank you for that suggestion. <laughs> there you go. Always happy to help. Um, so, Klaus, when you look back over your kind of career, which mm. has been very varied, and um, obviously you've got a long road ahead as well, um, in mm. terms of what's coming around, around the track and what's exciting, um, can you think of the best piece of advice that you've been given over the years, or a really good piece that stayed with you? I think it's uh, actually it's probably what Steve Jobs and others would, would also say. You know, just follow your instinct and, and do what, what you have fun with, what you like. And then the rest sort of will follow, because it's so, so difficult to predict you know, what's the right, you know, specific advice in which industry to do because our parents tried to do that and they had no clue what's going to happen and, you know, I never thought I would be able to do this. So I think the best thing is to just, you know, have fun, be curious, you know, work with interesting people mm-hmm. and then, you know, and something that you're passionate about or that you're really, really interested in because that's, you know, life is short and I think that's also personally the best thing to do because if you work in a job that you don't like, as long as you have the luxury you can sort of implement it, it's not possible for everybody perhaps. But I think, you know, as long as you can do that, I think then the rest, economics and so will, will follow. Mm, yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. Actually, if you can merge your passion with your profession, then that's an absolute sweet spot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and life yeah. is short. We don't know how long we've got, right? So let's make it count 100%. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were giving some advice to the young, the young Klaus Hamburger <laughs> <laughs> growing up, um, what advice would you give to your younger self, do you think? You know, do the same, I think. Leave Germany as soon as I could. I really see. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, that was, you know, definitely don't do anything different in terms of, you know, exploring and being curious yes. and, and, you know, trying to be in, in many different countries or so. Um, that's probably something. Maybe one should have considered doing sort of a formal education somewhere else because I did, you know, high school and university in, in Germany, but that by not many people, at least sort of my parents, didn't know about MBAs and, you know, different mm-hmm. studies in different universities. That may be something that I should have done, mm-hmm. you know, early. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the only thing I could, could change, perhaps. How lovely to look back and go, actually, yeah, I've, I've pretty much taken the path that, you know, you, you, you were really pleased with, you know, there's no big sort of, you know, um, areas of your life that you think, oh, no, I really regret doing that. Yeah. Or, you know, that's, that's yeah, a yeah, nice position true. to look back and go, yeah, actually, so yeah. I've enjoyed the ride. It's been yeah. pretty good. True. <laughs> I wouldn't You're do right, it differently. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. And, and the podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant, obviously. Great title, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what does that mean to you when you think of that either as three separate words or as one whole phrase? What, do, what, do, what comes to mind, Klaus? Yeah, so, I mean, brave, I think, is, you know, take risks and uh, be curious, bold, I think, look for, ideally, if, if what you do can have a big impact mm-hmm. and you, you might like it because of that potential, I think that's good. You don't want to, I would find it boring doing, you know, twiddling little things that don't, you know, have any potential big impact. So everything that I did so far, you know, has, you know, potential big impact, whether you realize it or not is, is a separate question. And brilliant, um, I think, I would not apply this to myself, but I would say hire people that are smarter than you. 
I think that's, you know, try to work with the best people that you can get, the most brilliant people that you can get. Because then, and don't be afraid of, you know, hiring people that are much smarter than you. <laughs> you should really do that. Because then I think sort of the, the team, they will hire other, you know, great people. And that's sort of what we always try to do. Mm. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, that's, that's, you know, potential risk that you want to avoid, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, that's a fantastic way of looking at Brave Bold Brilliant. Thank you, Klaus. <laughs> and honestly, it's very been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for so Yeah, thanks much. very much for having me. Great, great dialogue. You're very welcome. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave Bold Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.